Yo, yo, welcome everyone to another episode of Weird Growth, the podcast where we hear about the strange and unpredictable stories and journeys that finders found themselves on. Um, today we have a real treat for you. Um, we have Casey Holiday in the studio. What's happening? Direct from the OC, I believe. Yes, direct from the OC. Recent import from the US, father of many. Too many. No, not too many. The, the right amount, but three young ones, yes. Mate. Just advancing humanity one child at a time. Doing Thank what you for I what can. Doing. Yeah. That's why I was disappointed there was video for this. I've got three, <laughs> three under three, so I don't look, you know, ready for oh, something mate, like this. But it's okay. It I've got one that's, that's uh, plenty for a lot when it comes to a lot of sleep. <laughs> anyway, you're a guy who knows what it takes to build a, a thriving global direct to consumer business, and can't wait to hear about, uh, about that with Kalo. Yeah. Um, but please tell us how do you introduce yourself? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good one. I guess at the, for this reason, a uh, former co-founder um, of Kalo. I guess I'm always a co-founder, but former owner of Kalo. Yeah. Um, and now I am a husband, proud father of three, as you mentioned. So I'll start there with the most important roles. Um, and then currently <clears throat> I work for Better Labs uh, in the city. Mm-hmm. So I'm there a couple of days a week working with the Better Labs venture team. So we do investments in uh, companies in WA and also in Australia. And then we have a couple of companies in the U.S. as well. And then I also work with the internal venture studios team at Better Labs. So that's sort of an incubator of entrepreneurs and founders that are trying to start companies um, and trying to commercialize them here in WA. So that's really awesome. Very and cool. then I also work uh, directly with founders in helping them scale their companies. Mate, you are going to have so many nuggets of wisdom for our <laughs> listeners today. I can't wait. I to. hope so. Yeah, mate. Thank you so much for for being for joining us on Weird Growth. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. But before we get stuck into that, I have a little pop quiz for yep, you. Um, if you were to start a brand new business from scratch today, what would it be, and what what customers would you be helping? Oh my goodness! So if I was going to start a brand new business mm-hmm. today. You want me to give away like an idea that I have or just like a, okay, so just, just something. So, so I guess kind of the reason that this podcast exists is this concept of sharing wisdom and knowledge based on experience to people that want to do it as well. And so I think it's interesting that in the world we live in today, there's so much information. So the problem is no longer access to information. The problem is now discernment of the information we have access to. Drinking from the fire hose. Right, yeah. And Mm. so it's like, well, how do I make sense of what it is? And really the only way to do that is to speak to people that have done it before. And so what I would try and do, which is actually kind of in line with the company that I recently created called Solving Hollow. So this may actually end up just being a shameless plug. Yeah, nice. But, um, But really it's about how do we create that discernment based on my experience for people that want to grow and start companies and uh, basically giving founders the wisdom and knowledge and education that they need to try and avoid sort of the, the potholes that exist in the road. Yeah. Like and someone's been there and done it before. Like exactly. Why should you be making the exactly. same Exactly. And when I look back at, at my journey, I was fortunate enough to have people around me that had done it previously. And I think it was a massive contribution to my ability to be successful. Now, you know, nobody can tell you all of the problems that you're going to have specific to your business, but they can tell you, Hey, here are sort of common misconceptions that you have about building a business or recognizing the time that it takes or connecting you with the right people. There's just so many resources that they can provide you that are valuable that can kind of shorten the distance between you and your dream. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I would say is I would try and create a business specifically for founders, giving them the education, knowledge, and experience that they previously wouldn't have access to. Love it. That is perfect. Customer problem solution. Yep. Bang on. Yep. Love it. Um, so let's let's hear about Kalo because that's the thing, you know, I think that you're, you know, my famous swan. for, yep, I guess. Absolutely. Yep. Um, can you please just, how did it all begin? 
Oh, gosh. Um, so first off, Kalo, uh, we are the creators of the silicone wedding ring. So if somebody's not familiar with it, um, and it's interesting. I got a, a plutonium, no, plutonium how, one. How dare you? Palladium one. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah right? So, and I, I am wearing a, a one, I guess, since we're on video, I can kind of show yeah. it here. So I can pass it around really if you guys cool. want to see it. Yeah, yeah so... Um, that's one that actually looks like metal, but initially we started with just a black silicone wedding ring. Yep. Um, and it's interesting when people, people are like, oh, you've built a really big business. Like, what's the idea? And then I go, it's silicone wedding rings. And then they go, there's got to be a disconnect between what I just heard between, <laughs> between what the product actually is. But um, I think that's part of the magic of the product itself was when we started it, we didn't know what it could be. And we didn't have unrealistic expectations of what it could be. And I mm -hmm. think unrealistic expectations of your own business is a massive problem for people starting businesses, yeah. not really understanding what capacity the business actually has, mm -hmm. um, or wanting to sort of jump to year five when you're on day three. Yeah. yeah. And so in the, or you're like, yeah, do a five year projection. Yeah. Something is exactly got no like data points. Exactly. To, to do exactly. That, yeah. Um, but, or you want to kind of jump ahead to the success that you see everybody else having early on. And the reality mm -hmm. is, is that it just takes time. <laughs> um, but for Kalo starting, so I was living in Los Angeles. I'm originally from Southern California, as you mentioned from the OC. Um, I was living in LA trying to be an actor, which means I was really just bartending. <laughs> and I, uh, and I had just married my wife. So my wife's a Perth girl. So we dated for nine months before we got married. Awesome. And uh, I was still bartending, working for a production company, trying to figure it out. And I realized that wearing a metal ring was just a pain. So got married. I loved what the product represented. I loved wearing a ring. I wanted to wear a ring, but yeah. I would go play golf and I would take it off or I'd go work out and I would take my ring off. Because it, it gets in the way. Yeah, it just in gets in the way or I, you know, it's, it's an investment. And so I'm like, I didn't want to scratch it up. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there's just a lot of reasons that it just didn't make sense to wear it all the time. Mm -hmm. So I just took it off. But then being who I am, three days later, I would find it or three days later, I would be looking for it. Or you'd you know, have when, cougars trying to chat you up. Because I would have, have just tons of babes <laughs> just hounding me in the gym and I couldn't fend them off and I wanted some kind of defense. Well, it was LA after absolutely, all. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I just, I was just, it was bothering me, but I didn't, I wasn't immediately thinking, oh my gosh, I have to create this solution. It was just more of a problem that I was dealing with. And I have a buddy of mine who ended up being my co-founder who married his wife about a month after I married mine. And one day in passing at work, he actually managed the restaurant that I was a bartender at. And we were just in passing in between shifts one day, started talking about metal wedding rings and how they were a pain. Oh, wow. And we were like, oh, well, let's just, somebody must have created something other than that that you can wear all the time. Surely. And there was tattoos, which was a really permanent option, which is fine, but not everybody wants to get a tattoo. And then mm. there was a metal ring. Those were really sort of the two extremes of options. Yeah. So we went and looked, didn't find anything, came back together about a week and a half, two weeks later and said, well, it doesn't exist. What should we do? Oh, wow. And I had had a buddy that had created a silicone bracelet company um, called Power Balance way back in the day mm -hmm. um, that blew up really crazy. But I was familiar with silicone and that people could wear it and that it wasn't that expensive to create. And so sort of mentioned to my buddy, like, well, what, what about maybe making a ring out of a different material like silicone? And he kind of took the idea and ran with it and went a little bit further. And then we kind of came back together again and we're like, oh my gosh, this is a real idea. Like, what should we do? Should we go for this? Yep. And both of us kind of looked at each other and said, well, if you're in, I'm in, let's go for it. Now, the problem was we didn't know anything about business. So <laughs> we didn't really know where to go next. Um, but that's initially where the idea was conceptualized. So cool, uh, mate. And like, that's what you were just saying is that there was no way of knowing whether or not that was going to be a success or not. You just had to give it a whirl. And that's uh, that's a big thing is like, just get it to people. Like yep. you don't know what, nobody knows what's going to work, what's going to be successful. And for us, you know, I didn't know if anybody besides my own father-in-law was going to be paying for rings, you sure. know, like trying yeah. to support the business, but yep. it was, let's give it a shot. 
let's try and sort of invest the least amount we possibly can. We bootstrapped the entire thing. So uh, we didn't go get funding from anywhere else. We didn't raise money, nothing like that. We just said, what do you have in your savings account? What do I have in mine? Let's pull it and see how many rings we can get. Um, and that's what we did. And then initially the plan was just to get the product to as many people as possible to figure out whether or not we'd wasted our money or we had a real opportunity. So how did you find those first initial customers, those early adopters? I think it was easy for us because in a way we were sort of those early adopters. You were the customer. In a way, yeah. Mm. And so I think it's uh, products are a little bit easier to understand if you're the customer, if you're solving a problem for yourself because yep. you've dealt with the problem, you understand the pain points of it, and then you recognize that there are other people like you because just in your everyday life you've talked to people about it. Yep. But we actually did need to go a step further in recognizing, okay, we've created this silicone wedding ring. Who are people that would find a metal wedding ring being a pain? So who really has this pain point beyond just a couple of guys in their 30s that, you know, were married and were taking it off to work out, right? So yep. there has to be more extreme examples of it. Yep. And the original communities we identified were firefighters. Uh -huh. So I'd gone to firefighting school for a year and dropped out. Um, and so I at least had familiarity with it. And yeah. I'd spent some time in firehouses and things like that and realized that when they... In this, I think it's a little bit different in Australia, but in the States, I mean, they're gone for three days at a time. Really? Um, yeah. So it's like you can, there's a bunch of different schedules. So you can go like on three days at a time and then you get four days off or, so they're at the firehouse for a long time. So you're but, sleeping in the firehouse. Yeah. So they sleep in the firehouse. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, that's why I've got the sliding poles that's in the why US sliding to wake you poles. up from yeah, slumber. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're on duty 24 seven for three days. So when they show up, they put all their stuff in the locker, car keys. Well, a wedding ring was one of those things. Uh -huh. So they put it in the locker. They'd go. Not all the time risking their lives, but some of the time they're out there, they're risking their lives fighting fires, but they don't have what's most important to them sort of represented with them while they're doing that. And then they would leave at the end of the day, they'd put their ring back on and they would do it for safety reasons. So yeah. we recognize that. Then we talked to um, people that were in the military. So would go on deployment for nine months for safety reasons. They wouldn't take a wedding ring with them or they mm -hmm. wouldn't wear one while they were away. Again, high stakes moments where you want to have your family with you. They weren't able to wear wedding rings, so we went after that. And then we recognized people that were consistently spending time in gyms yep. uh, weren't wearing wedding rings as much either. Because that, just holding the just bar holding a barbell, heavy, or it's like if yeah. you if you spent a thousand dollars on a wedding ring and you're just grabbing a barbell all day long, yeah. one, it doesn't really make sense. It's kind of annoying, but you're also damaging something that's important to you. Wow. And so CrossFit was like right at that time was blowing up. Oh, yeah. and those are like the diehard yeah, it's a religion. People. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, so we went after CrossFit. So those were kind of the three target markets that we initially went after just after just based on the knowledge that we have of these are people that have this pain point the most yeah and then they're niche enough to mm -hmm. be able to be targeted and you can give a message directly to those sort of people but yeah. also broad enough a market where you can make some serious money out of it yeah well it, and it was great and i think that's what actually made us successful really on was the niche marketing mm -hmm. but the the good thing about those communities is they're really viral so it's like if you walk into but a room and meet a CrossFitter, you'll know they're a CrossFitter within five seconds because they've told you, right? So it's like, those are viral <laughs> communities. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like, those are viral communities where they are talking to other people and they're also congregating in places where 40 to 50 other people are. So firehouses, there's 20 other people in a firehouse with the one person that's coming in. In a CrossFit gym, there's a bunch of other members that exist there in the military. They're training together. So these are viral communities that are very proud of what they do, but they also share yep. the products that they're using. And so that allowed it to take off. Love it. So you had those early customers, you knew who you, your niche or your niche. Mm -hmm. I just still don't know what the right pronunciation is. I don't think there is a right. Whichever, whichever you want to say it's, is right. And it's actually, yeah. it's, it's written niche, so that makes better sense. But yeah. I've always said niche. Anyway, so you, you've identified those guys, got those early customers. Mm -hmm. How did you, how long did it take before you realized that actually we're onto something that we can start really scaling up? 
Yeah, so we had, I've heard you talk about sort of that, that moment, right? That moment that comes that kind of makes you realize, oh my goodness, this is a proof of concept. This is very real. So ours That's is right. actually a pretty fun story. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely that moment of like, oh my goodness, we're onto something. So initially, because we didn't have any money, we kind of became experts in guerrilla marketing, sort of grassroots type marketing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, where it's like trying to just figure it out. And so we just started reaching out to as many people as we possibly could and, you know, initiated this concept, which we call seeding, which was basically just planting a seed. So giving our product to people without any expectation. Okay. So we started just sending rings to as many people as we possibly could. And this was, this was 2013. This was before influencers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we went after people of influence, not necessarily influencers because that term wasn't really a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these were people that in person communities had a lot of influence. And so we started just sending the, created a list of how, who do we know? And I'll use a dated term, but a Rolodex here. It's like, you always know more people than you think you do, but it's like, who do we know that we think we could send this product to that would at least be able to test it and try it and then give us some feedback Mm -hmm. and maybe they'll wear it. And because it's a wearable product that people wear 24 seven, then other people will ask about it and we'll sort of grow that way. That was the only option we had. We couldn't go spend $50,000 on marketing. And that kind of makes sense because it's not a super high value thing to manufacture in the first place, no. I guess. Yeah. So, you, you so it's high margin, to, low yep. cost. It's like the perfect e-com product or it's a non-perishable, yep. high margin, low cost of Easy shipping. to mail, yep. Exactly. And so we were able to send it to people really inexpensively and just get it to as many people as we possibly could. And that was it. Well, one of those people, um, we fortunately had a network just being in Southern California and the nature of the relationships that we'd had. We knew some people that were athletes. And oh. so athletes were part of our demo. And so we said, let's just get it to you know, influential, whether it's professional athletes, semi-professional athletes. So I had gone to uh, Texas Christian University in Texas yep. for a couple of years and um, became good friends with a girl by the name of Jordan. And she ended up marrying Andy Dalton, who was the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals at the time. So he was an NFL quarterback. He had gone to TCU, so he was there at the same time. Wow. And, you know, part of just growing a business in the early days is, like, you have to be just shameful enough, (laughs) right? Shameless enough, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shameless enough to just tell people your product exists without scaring them away. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of a a fine line between doing those things, but you have to just tell people you exist. That's really the only way. And so for us, it was like, yeah, exactly. So it's like, let's just take a shot. So I reached out to her and they had just gotten married and I sent her a Facebook message and I still have the message. It's really interesting. (laughs) So I sent her this message and I was like, hey, Jordan, I know you and Andy just got married and I created this company that's a wedding ring. I know Andy's an athlete. I think it makes a ton of sense for him and what he does. Would he be willing to try it out? I'll just send it to you. No expectations. And she, I think it was about a month later, she responded and was like, yeah, he thinks it's really cool. Send it out. Far out. So, I mean, like I played it cool. You know what I mean? In the response, it was like, all right, I'll see if I can get to it. You know, that kind of thing. But I was really dancing around my my mom's living room at the time. (laughs) But so, so we sent it out and she, she said, got it. Thanks. Cool. I was like, all right, great. Then nothing happened from there as, you know, I mean, you kind of think those moments happen then nothing really did. So we Mm. just kept plugging away. Mm. And then there's a show in the States called Hard Knocks, which is on HBO, which is basically a documentary of the preseason of football. Okay. So it's about, I think it's about eight to 10 episodes and they go all the way from like the first practice of the preseason all the way to game one of the regular season. It's just a documentary style. It's really interesting. Well, Andy's team happened to be the team that was on Hard Knocks that year. Right. And so I'd sent it to him, I think in about May or June. And the first episode was beginning of August. Mm -hmm. So it was... I didn't know that they were going to be on it, but it just so happened. Cool Andy's going to be on I remember before the show aired going like, oh, maybe they'll, we'll be able to see him wearing it. But I didn't know if he was interested. I don't know if he was wearing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long shot. So I didn't have, it's like a cable channel. So I didn't have the channel. So I didn't watch the first episode or anything. So I was just 
chilling at home. And all of a sudden I got a video from my buddy with a text that said, did you know that that was going to happen? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like what happened? Yeah. And turns out on the first episode, they did about a five to 10 minute segment on Andy wearing Kalo. No way. And it was all about him wearing a rubber wedding ring and how he wears it on the field. And they literally started it by going, while because for winning a Super Bowl, you get a ring. Mm. And it was, while Andy oh. Dalton chases his Super Bowl ring, he has settled with this rubber wedding ring. And it kind of <laughs> slow panned down, like he has had his hand on his helmet, and it slow panned down from him down to literally our product. Holy and my. then it cut to him in the locker room going, I just love it because it allows me to wear a ring all the time. And I don't have to worry about taking it on and off and I can represent my marriage. And it's just really cool. I love where, and we didn't pay for it. We didn't script any of it, but it couldn't have, we couldn't have scripted it better than the way that it turned out. And it was interesting because on the show, they were actually making fun of him. Yep. Oh, really? Yeah. So the coach is so, actually making fun of him for wearing a, a wedding ring. It's like, oh, you yeah. can't not be married for these three hours of practice. Yeah. But it was perfect because the product, in a way, is kind of polarizing. Nails that, yeah. Yeah. So and good. so it just nailed what we were about and what yep. we wanted our brand to be about. But it also put people on the other side, which I think you need as well, of people that are going, that's dumb. That doesn't make sense. Because then it kind of creates the hype behind the product, right? Where you have people on both sides. And so... So what was, from, the, what was the effect of that? What, what happened next? Well, not, like nothing happened. But what right. I will say... So there was no, there was no financial outcome yeah. that happened you as a result like, of it. didn't like, you know, break the website or But I remember... Like no, absolutely not. <laughs> but what I remember doing was going, oh my goodness, people are probably tweeting about this. Mm-hmm. This was, Instagram wasn't even really a big thing. People are probably tweeting about this. Yeah, so I went up and looked at the hashtag of Hard Knocks, Andy Dalton, Andy Dalton wedding ring, rubber wedding ring, and realized that there started being traction of people talking about this. And so I went on Kalo's, you know, Twitter and just started responding to people, just saying like, hey, know that it's us. Because on the show, HBO actually cut out that it was Kalo and left rubber wedding ring. So I had to go on and tell everybody that Kalo was the rubber wedding ring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so that was kind of the moment. I mean, since about a year later, two years later, Google actually, we did a study with them on the impact of that moment. And it's nobody had ever searched for rubber wedding ring before. That show aired and all of a sudden now it's like a right angle of search terms for rubber wedding ring. And so even though it didn't, lead to immediate financial gain for us. It was a proof of concept of going, people are actually searching for this and it's showing that they want it. And so even just the buzz that came as a result of it proved to us, this is a real thing. People want it. Andy's willing to go on TV and talk about the value of it. And so from there it was, how do we kind of generate traction from this and keep leaning into it? So, I mean, I think at that time we were probably doing $700 a month in sales and maybe we started doing two grand and so that was in were, august were you, was kayla showing up when people were, were typing into google rubber I wedding mean, ring or was that maybe the SEO? maybe yeah. but like we didn't know seo we knew like we knew not, nothing i knew nothing yeah. about business like yeah. absolutely nothing so it was just hustle and hard work early in the early days and so eventually we did we went to our website and we went rubber wedding ring and then we actually as a company worked to try and go Let's make it a silicone wedding ring versus rubber because rubber kind of has a negative yeah. connotation where silicone, I guess, at least feels premium, a little premium. bit more premium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we worked through that and then we started looking at SEO and strategies and things like that to respond to people's stuff. But we were the only one that existed, so people eventually had to find us. And then that's when the sales actually did start coming in a little bit. What was the real takeaway that you had from that being being on the TV show and, the, and that sort of endorsement? Like, what did you learn from that? One, I think it's just you never know. Mm-hmm what sending your product or sharing your product with someone is going to lead to. Yep. 
because we sent it to 30 other people that nothing happened with. Mm -hmm. And then we sent it to Andy and somehow it turned into this. And I still have a relationship with Andy today and it built this really cool foundation for the business. And so I think that go into things without necessarily a desired outcome or expectation when it comes with like just telling people your product exists, that awareness is super valuable, but also don't underestimate the impact and power that that can have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said just for being something novel too. Oh my gosh. And the the way that that can capture someone's imagination and, you know, just take on a life of its own. Like the chances of that happening are so much greater when it's something that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Googled before. Yeah, exactly. And I think I talk about that a lot when we look at brand positioning and making yourself unique is Mm -hmm. that rarely are there products that anyone comes out with that nobody's ever seen of before. Nobody's ever seen a version of like, so often it's like, how can you just stand out in a way, whether that's through your branding, whether it's through the actual product yourself, like get people to see something through a different lens yep. or like see something that they didn't know even existed previously. And if you can kind of get, then you can at least get people's minds and you know wheels spinning a little bit on. Or what a problem that, that they, is. that they never registered yeah. really existed. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's, I think a lot of what it was where, um, you know, it's like stop spending time trying to convince your no's to be yeses and just find your deep yeses. Yeah. And I think for us, a lot of people looked at that product and were like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, honestly, like we had, I had plenty of people tell yeah, me it was fair. the dumbest thing ever. I had friends that years later were like, dude, I thought that was going to go nowhere. Like I had no belief that that was going to do anything, but I was just trying to support you. Yep. So there's a lot of people, but... Every great idea is stupid until it's not. Exactly. And I think it's also... What you, if you're a different type of customer, what you think is really helpful and solves your problem, I could also think is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But it doesn't matter because there are customers that exist. And so if you can go find those customers and understand where they are that resonate with your problem and you solve a problem for them, you don't need to solve a problem for the people that don't have it. Bang on. Yeah. You're never going to be all things to all people. No. In fact, that's no. the... That's the fast track to having a failed business really yeah yeah, yeah. and stop trying to be and yep. it's like even if you think the initial market like if if we sat here and said oh i'm trying to build a you know 10 to 20 to 30 million dollar a year business and i said crossfit you'd go that's probably that market three to five million people surely yeah that's big but you'd have to capture a large percent of that market to get there but the reality is is that crossfitters are also a lot of other things mm-hmm and so you get to adjacent markets that exist there. So if you work inside out in terms of your marketing and just find just the biggest fans you can possibly find, they'll start telling other people and it'll actually make your marketing a heck of a lot more effective. Yep. And I think that's what we found with Caleb. Yeah, having having 10 people who love your product to death is mm-hmm. way better than having 100 people who are just like, eh, yeah, who might I like use it, but 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Bang on. So, okay, that's awesome. So you started really feeling like this. you were onto something. Mm-hmm. What was the next step? How, how do you go, okay, it's time to turn the dial up. Like, yeah. what, what did you do next? Well, we started getting some money. So that was that's always helpful ah. is to have a little bit of, because it was Just sales revenue? Yeah, so yeah. sales revenue started coming in a little bit. So I think by, we launched in March 1st of 2013. By December of 2013, we were doing about nine to $10,000 a month in revenue. How did that feel? I, I thought I was a king. <laughs> I, I, like, I thought I could take on the world, right? It was just, it felt, one, it was really validating. And I think everything happens in stages and you have, you have to recognize the validation that comes with each one of those stages. Um, so instead of getting mad that we weren't doing 50, I was really excited that we were doing 10. Sure. And I was still, relative. I, I was commuting an hour and a half to bartend at that point because I'd moved back to Orange County with my wife to try and build Kalo. So I was still commuting to bartend five days a week and trying to build Kalo. So when we got to that point, it was, 
all I wanted to do was stop waiting tables. That was really why I wanted to start Kalo, why I wanted to take on a project. Mm -hmm. That was the driver for Mm -hmm. me. It was like, I wanted to eat lunch while everybody was eating lunch instead of serving all of the people during lunchtime. Like that's really what it was. And so once I got to that point, I went to my partner and I said, I think I can replace my income with income from Kalo. And I think that we have a validated idea. I mean, we were selling $20 product and we sold $10,000 worth of them. So it was a decent amount. Yeah, Yeah. Decent volume. And so I said, I think somebody needs to go full time because we haven't turned the dial up on this thing. And I think we can, and I think there's real opportunity that exists here and that we had the margin to be able to do it. So in that cash coming in, we were pretty profitable with it. And so I went to him and you know, he was a little hesitant. He was a little more conservative than I was in terms of going for it like that. And he had a little more life overhead than I did. Yep. Um, but he said, all right, let's do it. Let's go for it. So I ended up going full-time and just full-time into the business. And that was not that it was necessarily me, but it was at that moment that I think we started taking it seriously, what we were doing. And it wasn't just this side hustle. There's so much to be said just for having the focus of a yeah, full-time exa- focus, yes, right? A hundred percent. It's It's almost... I mean, I've never really heard of anyone who's done something really, you know, world changing that hasn't well. done it. That yeah. hasn't done it full time. It hasn't been the full focus. Maybe Elon Musk, but at some point, sure. another, he's had full focus on all, all yeah, those projects. Absolutely, yeah. and I think you have to. And I think everyone would agree with that. That mm. it's like you have to commit your time to one thing, otherwise, it won't. It will never fulfill the potential that you think it may have. Yeah. Um, and so that that's really what it was for me. Is like I'm spend. I'm still spending forty hours a week bartending. What if I didn't? What if I started spending that time on building a business? And so that's why I started putting all of my attention toward it and trying to grow the thing. And then from there, there was really an inflection point, which is interesting in terms of what it is that you guys do with from a paid media perspective yeah. was Facebook advertising was incredible. CPMs were incredibly low. It was just so cheap yeah. to advertise. It was like on days oh my gosh. Facebook. Yes. Yeah. Nobody was really doing it. It was still such a new thing. Yeah. But for us, we could Facebook had people do things that made it really simple for us to target Mm-hmm. our demo and that was relationship status so just by somebody saying i'm married yep on facebook we could eliminate a significant amount of waste with our paid advertising okay. and so what happened was one day i was so were you targeting people who were married or weren't married who were married okay yes who were married right. yes. recently yeah, yeah, yeah. married yeah who were recently married or just people that had worn a, wet, a metal ring for a long time and it was annoying but they didn't have a solution previously mm-hmm. so we went after married people and then there's, like I talked about with the markets we went after, they're very self-identifiable. So it's like, I'm in the military. I'm a police officer. I'm a firefighter. I'm a CrossFit. People on social channels identify as those things. And so we could go after the 34-year-old married CrossFitter who's also a firefighter who spent, set, like, did two terms in the military. You know, like, yeah. we could yeah. go after so the those, most focused customer we possibly yeah. had. Yeah. And for us, it made our marketing incredibly effective and profitable. Yeah. And... We just start, I honestly, I started one day, I boosted a post. That's how we realized Facebook marketing was a thing. It was just that little boost button in the early days. And I was like, let's spend $20 to boost this post. And I think like five people commented on it. I was like, whoa. People you never heard of before. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, this is actually, I wonder if we could show more people Kalo. And then it kind of just went from there. And we learned the hard way what paid media was. But Mm -hmm. really, that's that's what I think ended up being the massive trajectory for Caleb. Yeah, and this is a really important concept. Like It's a basic concept, but it's something that people forget is people are either like proactively looking for a solution to the problem mm-hmm. for yourself, which in your case wasn't existed. Like Google showed that no one was looking, Nobody for, was looking slu- for it. Or you need to get in front of them and interrupt their information flow and introduce yes. a new concept to them. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's the amazing thing about these channels, these social channels, is you already have that information about where they are in their life mm-hmm. and 
you can you can sort of create these audiences of yeah. people who are your absolute perfect customer. Yeah, and I think a big part of the marketing is also response to consumer behavior that already exists. Right. So not asking them to, we didn't ask them to wear something that they previously were not wearing. We mm-hmm. were asking them to replace something that they had already committed to wearing that was more convenient. Yeah. Yep. So it wasn't like we needed to go out and condition people. Like it wasn't like nobody wore wedding rings and we all of a sudden had to try and convince the world that they should wear wedding rings. What we were doing was going, everybody's already wearing a wedding ring, but it doesn't make sense for this select group of people. Here's our product that now does. So you can just get laser focused. And so that was that really just that path you bootstrapped, you you know, more revenue came in, you could mm-hmm. spend, you could afford to spend more money on Facebook. Yeah. You could get more efficient with the advertising and then just, just scale that way. Is yeah, it? I mean, for the most part, we didn't really take a salary for the first two years of the business. Wow. Um, and I, we took a very, I took a very small salary when I went full time. Yeah. But my business partner didn't take a salary until another year after that. Yeah, right. And so we took all of the money that we made and put it back into the business. And so in the first year of the business, we did about $40,000 of revenue, mm-hmm. most of it being in sort of those last three to four months. Yep. And then our second year, we did $3.2 million. So it was, that was really like we turned on Facebook and we took all of our profitability and put all of it back into uh, marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, and so did you get to the point though where you were like, okay, we're turning over $3.2 million. Maybe we should start paying ourselves? Yeah. Or was it just keep plowing it back? Yeah. Or no, How no, did you have that conversation? No, we got to that point. And I think we, we had a conversation I think it's really valuable for every entrepreneur to have, which uh, a couple of guys that were had helped us, they kind of put in some sweat equity. They were helping us grow it. Mm-hmm. And they sat down with us and they said, we only want to continue being a part of this thing if we understand what it's becoming. Right. And so if, yes. And so it forced my partner and I, and because it was just like, we didn't know what the company was. It wasn't like I was starting a company. I was going out and getting venture capital. I knew it was going to be X. I had this, that wasn't what it was. Kayla was just a, like a solution to a problem to see how many people have it. And let's see where this thing can go. Yeah. Um, And so all of a sudden it started gaining all this steam and it was like, well, what do we want this thing to be? You know, is it like, do we just want to try and make as much money as we possibly can, have it be a cash grab and then kind of bail and it's a good story? Yeah. Or do we actually want to build a brand with a community that's about something bigger than just sort of turning a profit? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my business partner and I were both aligned on that because we never started Kayla to get rich. We just started Kayla to try and solve a problem and see where it could go. And so for us, it was always about bigger. It was always about the representation of what the wedding ring was and what that represented in our lives. It was always about something bigger. And so for us, it was a no brainer. It was, we want this thing to be big. We don't want to just go for a cash grab, but that forced us to make decisions about what we prioritized over the next two to three years that then put us in a position to be able to know where we were headed, why we were going there and strategically what direction we were going to take. And then through that, we got, I think about six months later, we said, yeah, it's probably time for us to start paying ourselves because we need to continue giving this this business all of us. Yeah, that's that real cool thing about that sort of, you know, vision to the horizon is it makes it easier to bring great people along with you. For sure. Uh, it, it makes it easier to make big decisions too because mm-hmm. it's all through the prism of how do we get to that yeah. thing. And, you know, and, and then it's more likely to happen too yep. just because you've got that focus. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and, and, you know, there were some advisors that came in that gave us some wisdom in terms of, you know, potential pitfalls that we may deal with in the future. And so we talked about basically building our moat. So what were the strategic things that we could prioritize to build a moat around our business to try and protect yeah. it from competitors? Because, because it was something that was pretty oh, easily rest- Yeah, low barrier to entry. Right. So, okay. so anybody could come in and go, hey, look, I can go replicate. Like if we sit in this room in a month, we could probably through Alibaba go get silicone wedding rings here and start that company. Like mm. We could. It, it mm. became that simple for people to do. I'm sure probably people did. 
They absolutely did. Yeah. yeah. So for us, what were they? So one was we know that we wanted to build a brand. So everybody talks about building a brand, but ultimately, like, what does that mean? It meant yep. sort of a deeper engagement with customers, and it meant potentially spending money in areas that didn't drive a direct ROI, but we knew would contribute to overall success of the brand. And so it meant storytelling. Okay. You know, beyond just having a website that was a cash register that was very transactional and focusing on transaction, it meant how do we tell stories of really active, rad people that are married but are also pursuing their dreams and living mm. life a certain way? Like, how do we tell those stories? Create so, that emotional attachment. Yeah, so storytelling, yeah. I guess, would be a big part of it. We knew that we needed to innovate our product. So as I mentioned, the first product, if... My partner, Ted, and myself could create it. Anybody could create it. <laughs> yeah. And so how do we innovate the product to a point where it's a little bit more challenging for people to be able to replicate what it was that we were doing? Mm -hmm. Then we knew that we needed to get into retail locations. Mm -hmm. So even though we were a, a native e-commerce business and there's a lot more margin there, we knew that because rubber, rubber wedding rings didn't exist in retail, if we could get there first, if we could yep. take advantage of our first mover position, then... A big, you know, a big company like Dick's Sporting Goods, for instance, which is a big sporting goods store in the States, they're probably not going to carry two or three silicone wedding ring companies, right? right? So once we got in there, built a good relationship with them, the we could sort up. of go after a land grab and own those positions. Mm -hmm. So that was part of our strategy as well. And then expanding internationally. So the problem of married, active people not being able to wear metal wedding rings was a global problem. It wasn't just in the United States. And yep. so for us, that was a plan as well to expand beyond that in order to continue to grow the business. So those were sort of the four key pillars of our strategy early on. Yeah, that, that moat thing is something that's really important once you get to a certain scale, obviously. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and you start sort of showing up on the radar of, yep. the, of the big retail. Absolutely, yeah and, yeah. I think, and I think that part of building the moat, what people I think miss a lot, is that it's about what you say no to. It's not necessarily about what you say yes to. Right. And so sitting in that room was like, what are we not going to do was more so the conversation than what we were. And that will lead you to what you should do. So yeah, what was the split between the online sales and retail? Yeah, and so initially we were direct to, direct to consumer through our e-commerce platform. So that's what it was. And then we expanded to Amazon. So Amazon in the States is oh. a monster. Yeah, wow. So we started expanding there. And in the States, people, what there's a lot of debate on, should you be on Amazon? Mm. I call it a necessary evil. Mm. So now I think over 60% of the search terms for consumer goods products in the States start on, on, start on Amazon. Start on. Start on Amazon. Yikey. Yeah, so it's like if you need a new toothbrush, you don't go to Google and look up toothbrush companies or go to the local store. You go on Amazon, yep. and they'll have it to you in a day. Yeah. So it's just what they've built is so incredible. So, again, that was kind of early days of Amazon as well. So we got on Amazon, and in the beginning days of Amazon – Nobody was looking for silicone wedding ring. Nobody was looking for rubber wedding ring. In 2018, there were a million searches a month for rubber wedding ring. Far out. You guys created a yeah. new category. Can, of and completely, yeah, disrupted a market and created an entirely new category. And so just crazy things like that. So we went to Amazon first, and then we started getting in retail doors. When I exited the company, it was about 60, 40 e-commerce to retail. Okay. So 60% oh, wow. being e-commerce, 40% being retail. Surprising. Yeah. Yeah. We were in about 4,000 retail doors. Yeah, wow. So just the revenue that that was able to generate with the orders and stuff made it kind of about that. But split. Like the obvious thing is that just the exposure of being in those physical retail stores probably drove the overall volume. It totally of the did. Online yeah. It was also, like a it was also, it's also a lot in part of why we wanted to get to retail is the infrastructure required to be successful in 4,000 retail doors is very different than the infrastructure required to throw up a website and ship goods. Yeah. And so we knew competitors would come to e-commerce. They probably wouldn't be able to show up in retail doors. And so what happened was we dealt with a lot of our competition over time on e-com, yep. not as much in retail. Yeah, right. Amazing. So um, what's publicly known about the sort of how you guys finished up with Kalo? Like, 
not just just that we were acquired. Yeah, You're there's acquired. not a ton yeah. that, that was known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so okay. we actually went through and it's some interesting learnings. We th- we went through private equity acquisitions, tw- two journeys of it beforehand mm-hmm. that didn't work out, and then the third finally did. So there was a ton of learnings about what worked there, what didn't work there, and what you know putting your company in a position to be able to be acquired was really interesting as well. But like, what was that like as an experience? Was it stressful or exciting or difficult? Uh, what I will say, and if this is for anybody, if anybody's raising money, it's a similar journey where it's a full-time job trying to sell your company, just like it's a full-time job trying to raise money for your company. Yeah. Um, so it's really stressful. It's exciting. Mm. Um, I actually found the process to be really exciting, you know, sharing the journey of Kalo, talking about where it's going to go, looking at, you know, our performance and sort of being analyzed in those ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, you realize the way that a potential acquirer views your business is a lot less heartfelt than the way that you view your oh, business. Yeah. And so it kind of forces you to view your own business through a different lens. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what that journey is, is about trying to figure out what's wrong with your business, not high-fiving you for what you've done well. Because mm-hmm. um, they're buying what you're building, not what you've built. Yeah, they're super risk-averse, I guess. And oh, you've yeah. got, you know, information asymmetry. So, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so it was really, it was a really interesting process. I think I also learned a ton about what's required in order to put your position in, your company in a position to be able to be sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we were a bootstrapped business, we grew so quickly. We didn't have processes and systems and infrastructure. And I think I thought that private equity groups and acquirers wanted a fixer upper and they don't, they want the flipped house. You know what I mean? It's now been redone and re and that's ready to kind of just have people come in and pay them rent for a long time. Money machine. Yeah. And we were way more of the fixer up or, you know, we had leaks in the roof, you know, but like we could still throw a party, you know, that's kind of what the house was. So, um, you know, it was really interesting. And that's part of why I think we, it didn't work out the initial two times was just, we were just not, you know, in a reporting capacity in a systems capacity in a process capacity ready to do it. And we also, you know, it was interesting. We were doing 20 million a year in e-commerce and I sat across from private equity guys and they told me my company was a fad. They said, doesn't matter you say you're going to go to retail. Yeah, we're going to go to retail. Great. Prove yourself in retail and then we'll come back and talk. Like those are the conversations. So you're sitting there going, doing 20 million at a 20% profitability. Not good enough. Not good enough. What else do I need to do? Well, this is a fad. It's going to, it's going to like tail out. It's going to not turn anything. Okay. So what do we need to do? Well, you tell us you're going to retail, Mm -hmm. get in retail doors and then we'll go. So then we kind of like, okay, that was the next phase. So that was what took us to the end. And then I think we got, you know, a lot of times the acquirer, it's, it's the right people that are coming in and when brands group, the company ended up acquiring us in 2019, they were just the right fit for us because they were, they have a shared services model where they're growing e-commerce specific businesses with some retail distribution. And it's a very sort of behind the curtain. We have a lot of internal people that can do a lot of what is currently being done in the company. And so uh, they ended up just being the right fit for us. Yeah. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I I do think that this space is really interesting to founders, you know, especially if they're not necessarily you know creating a um like a principle base like you know they're creating a vision or solving a massive problem that's close to them they're trying to build a business that they want to sell one day absolutely yeah but what would your advice be to founders who are starting out and bootstrapping and like with an eye to being acquired like what what would you say to them uh i would say initially the, the advice that i would give to everyone whether you're trying to build a business to sell it or to not now i i always say like just put your company in a position where someone would want to buy it focus on doing that more so than doing what you know you think a potential acquirer may want from you but it's always good to take everything into consideration but care about the customer that's it number one thank you and then while you are obsessively caring about the customer operate your business in a capacity that focuses on profitability Mm -hmm. 
Like, do the best job you possibly And I know it's that seems like really simple business advice. Yeah, but sometimes it seems counterintuitive. But sometimes it well. feels a little bit counterintuitive where it's like, how do I care a lot for customers but also sort of focus on the profitability? And the thing is, is that customers, it's more competitive n- now more than it has ever been before in terms of what customers, the service that customers expect from brands. Sure. It's just so insane now. And so you, like, what? but what's good about that is it sets a benchmark for the way customers should be cared for and the experience that you should provide for them. So if you can focus on that and optimize that, then go, how can I run my business behind closed doors in a, as well as possible to be able to maintain profitability, but also give that experience for customers. Love it. And I think that, and then on just like a basic running a business is know your numbers. Just uh, if you don't know your numbers, you know, you don't know your business. Yep. And I, that was one thing that I'd never taken a business course before. Yep. I was a college dropout. I was bartending, trying to be an actor. That was my resume when I started my company. Okay. So, but what was important to me was that I believed I was capable of learning everything I needed to, to run a successful company. So even if you don't know right now what you need to do, if you believe you're capable of learning it, you will go do it. And so, but one thing that I think, like I actually went back, so I was a college dropout after I sold my company, I went back and finished my degree because I wanted to take sort of the school of hard knocks version of learning something and actually apply it with formal education and see how those collided. Yep. And what I realized was that there was benefit to formal education in terms of business school, because it taught you things about business that you need to know before you start one, not necessarily what you'll learn while you grow one. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And like, I I guess the theory would have been so much more rich for you having seen all the real world. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And what, and so when like I took an accounting class, which is the, it was a nightmare. Accounting is bro- like it's just a crappy system. Oh, it's terrible. It's not designed for running. Right? No, it's like debits designed and credits, and it, I like it was. I'm handwriting stuff out. I'm like, and it's all you're thinking for tax about compliance. exactly. Yeah. But what it taught me was financial discipline, mm-hmm. and it taught me understanding like if I just by doing debits and credits, if one number's off, it's all screwed up, and it taught me to realize like that there's a story that's being told within these numbers. Yep. That I wasn't paying attention to as my business was growing. And for me, it was, I'm a storyteller. I'm a brand guy. I'm a marketer. I love like, but what I missed was that like my, my finances were telling me a story that I wasn't paying attention to at all. And so I think that the best way to run a business really well is to know your numbers really well and optimize them and pay attention to, you know, what it is that you're measuring because what gets measured gets managed. Well, I don't need to ask you what you would do differently if you were to start again with that. That's really great. Yeah. Thank you. And now you're giving back with uh, Solving Hollow. Yeah. uh, Which is a framework for building a thriving business according to the byline on your website. You've done your homework. Yep. What is it that drives you now towards helping other founders? I think for me, because I didn't have sort of that formal background of business. I'd never started companies before. My story's really cool because I was able to build one without that background. And so when I look at Solving Hollow, I look and I go, um, 78% of small business owners or business owners in general have taken two or fewer business classes in their life. Is that right? Right? And so you've got this, there's this new wave of entrepreneurship. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to run my own business. I want to be my own boss. Yeah. It's never been easier to start a business. Absolutely. All of those things. But People just get into it without recognizing what it actually is required in order to be successful within it. And oftentimes they end up losing a lot of money learning things the hard way, Mm. trying to grow that company. And so what I thought was, one, if I went back into, let's say, year one or two of Kalo, where I was bootstrapping this thing, I'd never taken a course, I had a lot of unanswered questions, I was trying to navigate the future, what framework do I wish I would have had? Yep. 
that would have at least had it all make a little bit more sense to me and helped me understand what I needed to pay attention to. And I think a big problem in growing businesses is that people major in the minors and yep. minor in the majors. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. So it's like, yep. you should be majoring in the majors. And so, but if nobody's there to tell you, this is what you should be paying attention to, this is what you should be looking at, these are the questions you need to be answering, then you're just going to go spend four hours a day on Canva trying yeah. to create an Instagram post for focus your 64 followers. Fun stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And focus on the fun stuff. And so I was like, man, if I could take the knowledge and experience that I've had to try and create a framework for founders to, you know, have clarity, you know, I say from mission to money with your business, then at least it'll put them in the best possible position to be successful. It doesn't yeah. guarantee success, but it'll at least help you answer the right questions. And so what are some of the tools or frameworks or whatever that you sort of that I touch on? I've noticed that your uh, brand story, um, story brand, credit, yeah, certified. story brand, certified, yeah, yeah. which is really, you know, yeah, really which cool. is really cool. Yeah. yeah. And so just a, real quick on what story brand is. Yeah. So Donald Miller is the creator of story brand. So I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for a little while. Um, and he created this framework basically to clarify people's message. Mm -hmm. So a big problem is, and maybe somebody watching this or listening to this can you know, relate so, to it. It's so like common. you go to a party and somebody comes up to you and they're like, well, what do you do? And you're like, well, I just started a company and it's like super great. And you're like, what is it? And you're like, well, I, uh, I, hel I help people do that. And like, that's your livelihood. Yes. And you can't communicate like, like so in fundamental. succinct. Yeah, it seems so fundamental. But yeah. people don't know what people want to hear. They don't know what they should be telling people. And it's just really unclear. And so yeah. he created StoryBrand to just... As it, which is a framework, basically just clarify your message. Very clear, what's the problem you're solving? What outcome does it create for customers? How do you make their lives better? Yeah. Which is great. And so I'd been building a brand for eight years. And I, I when I got exposed to his framework in Nashville, I was like, I wonder what, again, same thing. It's like, I'm going to take what I know about brand and storytelling and go take this framework and see how it can apply. And it's been really helpful so I can help teach people because going from, I love education, I love helping founders, I love educating founders, but doing it versus teaching are two very different skill sets. Sure, yeah. And I realized that there was a gap in my ability to teach it. Okay. So I went and got that framework. And yep. then uh, based on kind of what I learned through that, and then my own experience of what I believe founders needed, I created the rest of the framework itself. So initially, it starts with aligning a compelling culture. So you may be a founder by yourself and say, well, it's just me, I don't have a culture. Well, the reality is you are your culture, your behavior, the way you communicate, the way you work every day, the way you show up, all of that is dictating a culture. So when you yep. start bringing people into it, you have to be aware of what it is you want that culture to be to yep. make sure that you're aligned with it. Yep. So also for business partners, I had a co-founder. There's a massive challenge. My my work relationship and co-founder relationship was 10 times harder than my marriage actually is. Mm. It's just a big part. It's a big challenge when you're dealing with high stakes environments where there's money involved. There's just a lot yeah, of emotions that different can be brought up life there. Absolutely. And, and so how do we make sure that if you're a partnership, you guys are on the same page as well? So initially... It starts with asking you 17 key questions, nine being about your business, questions that you need to answer, and then eight being about your leadership. Who are you as a leader? Okay. And so if you by yourself, it's making sure you have the answers to those questions. And if you're partners, you answer them separately and then come together and see how aligned you actually are. Then it goes through defining a mission for your company, aligning your why. And then the next section is defining a clear brand message, which talks about knowing your customers understanding the message you're communicating to them and looking at your positioning into a market. Yep. And then finally, it's about designing a strategic roadmap. So how do you wow. take what you've done and actually design a roadmap that you can go after? And that's all about roles and responsibilities within, within a company, who's doing what, who's responsible for what, looking at your money yep. and other areas like that. Yep. So sounds super valuable, for particularly that early stage, you know, if you're oh, like setting you. the foundations Absolutely. early on. Yep. Uh, and that structure, then it allows you to just be so much more effective with looking after your customers. Absolutely. Everything else is taken exactly. care of. Exactly. It's yeah. just well making done. sure you have the right answers 
answered. You know what I mean? Like you like questions answered. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. right. And and just having someone from the outside asking those questions can be yeah. so can be so valuable yeah. too. And yeah. I, I, I it's like it's same thing. I mean, what you guys do and you guys even doing this podcast is so valuable. It's just access to experience for people is harder than I think everyone thinks that it is. Like going on and googling something. Again, you go back to discernment. It's like, I now need to know how to take that and apply it to my business. Mm -hmm. And it never tells me about what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. You're sitting across from somebody that actually has experience that's teaching you, goes, hey, this is this feels like a great idea, but here's the five pitfalls you might run into doing that. And it just helps you understand how to apply it to your own business. Love it. Finally, you're an investment associate with Better Labs. Better Labs. So we talked about RAC, mm-hmm. which is a massive membership. Well, there's the big, biggest membership organization here in yeah. Western Australia. Yeah. It's actually quite visionary what they're doing there, I believe. Oh, my goodness. In it's terms really of a cool. very conservative, old school you know, vehicle insurance business, which is investing in creating new, innovative you know, business models. Oh, my models. gosh. Yeah. Both internally, but also bringing out in, in external businesses and investing in them. So. Yeah, and giving giving them all the credit in the world. In yeah. the world, it's a hundred and fifteen year old business, right? So it's right. like you don't often think of the hundred and fifteen year old businesses to be the innovative ones in the space today. But I think what they recognized when you look at the and they had the foresight to do this is they recognized in the future we're looking at vehicles and that the world is changing in terms of how people drive. So there's autonomous yes. vehicles, there's public transportation, there's a lot of things, and that as a result of the change in behavior for people that they're going to lose a significant amount of revenue in their company. And so how can they innovate and supplement what previously used to exist based on a market and now utilize these really cool, new, innovative commercial ideas, whether it's an internal incubator that we have or the investment side of things to continue to grow RIC and make it really powerful and do it through this better labs, you know, vessel. It's really cool. Oh, it is. Yeah. And massive credit to them. It would be the easiest thing in the world for them to bury their head in the sand. Just keep going. We've done, this is the way we've always done it. Why should we change? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. We're still going to have our members there. So no, it's it's really awesome to see that. And it's great for Western Australia and the Australian ecosystem. It's um, awesome. For innovators. Yeah. And a a big part of, it's a really cool opportunity for me that I'm really grateful for because coming to Perth, for me, I didn't know anybody. I had no agenda. I had no plan of what this was going to be. You know, this <laughs> opportunity presented itself, and it gives me an opportunity to utilize the experience that I've had to, to feed into not just Australia, but actually like Perth itself mm. and getting people to realize that Perth isn't behind the times like maybe the rest of Australia actually thinks that like we're actually really doing cool, innovative things here yep. and, you know, continuing to put Perth on the map, not just yeah. in Australia, but globally. Now, speaking of branding, like Perth does have a little bit of a, branding like challenge absolutely and a little bit of almost in- insecurity i suppose mm-hmm. about how we explain ourselves to the rest of the world what was your first impression of perth and how do you explain it to people who've never been here <laughs> yeah the, yeah that, that's, that's a good question it's um i think i found the easiest way to deg- describe purse is to draw parallels especially for people in the united states so even like my family they think australia is sydney koalas and kangaroos right like that's that's what they think and sharks yeah. right like that's yeah. like oh that's that's australia because they've never <laughs> yeah. really been here and they just don't really know much about it yeah. and so when i say i'm going to perth people are like i uh, sometimes they'll go oh i have a friend that's kind of been kind there of and southern california yeah. surf culture so a lot of people were familiar with it but i've drawn the parallel of like it's like san diego nice so san diego in california an incredible city it's yep. on the water it's yep. got a downtown but it also kind of has like a lifestyle vibe to it as well where the beach is right there there's a lot of golf that's happening but there are cool, innovative things that are going on. And yeah. it's San Diego's a million and a half people. I think Perth's like two million. So there's a lot of parallels yeah. that can be drawn to it. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you said that because I've been to San Diego. Oh, you and have? I felt, okay. felt, you know. So much like it. Familiar, yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, granted, we don't have Mexico right there on the border, sure. but we do have south of the river. and Absolutely. You know, there's a few Mexicans down there maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, no, I think you're right. But there's definitely that vibe of, you know, the lifestyle. We're, it's a sunny place. You've got 300 days of sunlight totally. a, a year. You know, we've got the beaches, the sand, the cool, um, you know, if you're, if you're an outdoorsy kind of person, like this is your place. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah thanks. One final big piece of advice to founders starting out their journey, <laughs> uh, if you had to pick one. I would say <laughs> validate your solution as quickly as you possibly can, and then who it's validated with, really lean into it. So um, the reason I don't say validate your problem is because your solution may not be the right solution to that problem that exists. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and there also may be other solutions that exist to that problem. So it's about validating your solution as quickly as you possibly can, and Give it everything you possibly have. Tell as many people as you can about it. Share your product. Try and figure out who your customers are and run after them yep. and validate that solution. And once you validate it with it, like I said earlier, don't try and convince the no's, turn the no's into yeses. Mm -hmm. Find the people that are hell yeses mm -hmm. and lean into them and figure out why they are and find more people like them and use them to grow your business. But if 42% of the reason companies fail is product market fit, and so that's basically half, you know, which means that one in two people out there are trying to provide a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. They're trying to push a round peg into a square hole. Exactly. And so go out there and validate that what you are selling is a real solution. And if it's not, like, don't get bummed about it. You'll find another solution, yeah. right? Like there's a lot of, like ideas are, there's plenty of them, right? There's a sea of ideas that exist out there, but there's not a sea of people that have proven that their idea is a good one. And so go out there and do that. Absolutely. Sage advice. Thanks, KC. Yep. All right. Show and tell time. All right. You are the first guest who's actually, actually brought a prop into oh my for show and tell So mine has nothing to do with entrepreneurship or starting a company, apart from plugging a cool company. Is that, yeah, is that please. Fair? So this is about, you know, something that's your favorite tool or yes. toy or and device that, that improves I'm a, your life. I'm all about transparency here. So I haven't used it yet. So I just got it. Oh, okay. So look, awesome. I ordered it a year and a half this ago. A in the, I ordered it a year and a half ago. Yeah. I ordered it a year and a half ago in the States. And it wasn't out yet, so it was a pre-sale. So I bought it, and then I shipped it here from the states, and that took about nine months. I'm so, intrigued. Uh, I have no okay. idea actually what this is. No, I mean, so it's a it's a Skydio two drone. What? So Hello. here's the actual drone itself. Look at that. So you can kind of you can see it. Yeah. But what's cool about this is it's very it's AI driven, and it basically will follow you. So you you either it's on your phone or you have like a, a little piece that you put with you when you're going. So if you're running through a forest, for instance, huh. it'll follow you and it'll navigate through the trees no way. to make sure that it's still staying focused on you as you do it. So this is the, the Skydio 2, so you can see the camera right there. You guys can yeah, check it out. Yeah. So the battery pack's Thanks, not man. in it. So I haven't even used it yet, but in terms of Australia, when you talk about going out in the bush or the massive parks in the space, like yep. it's super dope. And you can, if you go, so Skydio, S-K-Y-D-I-O is the company. All right. We'll That's the, the Skydio the, too. We'll put the links in the show notes. But yeah, you have cool. to go watch it. So it's so cool. So like if you're running through a forest with 150 trees where you are and you're running in between them, it literally will keep you fo focused and follow you, but navigate itself around the trees. Yeah. Well, that's pretty incredible. Incredible, because I like you've heard of the follow ones before, but they're yeah. navigating around the trees. But yeah, it's all AI based, yeah. and it, it will basically it'll basically learn yeah. as it's going through. So watch the videos online. You have people that are like yeah. mountain biking, all kinds of we crazy stuff, or snowboarding, or yeah, you should yeah. cut some in. Yes, yeah, um, but I haven't used it. I've been meaning to. Yeah. And when I lived in Nashville, I lived on five acres, uh -huh. and I had like a little motorcycle and stuff. And so I was gonna, <laughs> and two big huskies that were around. So I was gonna do it, but it didn't come in time because it wasn't ready. And then I moved to Perth, so I didn't actually get the chance to do it, and it just got here. 
Can you get it to follow um, the Huskies? I could, yeah. So I could put it on their collar. Oh wow! And it would, it could just like follow, like it would follow them around everywhere. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so That'd it's super fun. sick, and then navigate through stuff. So we'll have to get, we can get the crew out together, and we can all fly it together to do some stuff. Oh but. yeah! Thanks for bringing that in. That's beautiful. Scott, yeah. Yeah. Cool gadget, yeah, right? That's absolutely. what they said. They said yeah. cool gadget, and so that's what I brought. Nice right. one. Well, thank you. Um, do you have any other? Do you have any? I mean, through this, any other yeah, questions? Well, any other stuff? That's well, what's your sort of final plug? And what if people are interested in getting involved in solving Hollow or yeah. RSA Better Labs? I'll like, plug, what, what can they do? Yeah, so I'll start with I'll start with Better Labs. I mean, that's what I spend a decent amount of my time doing and working with. And so, I, I mean, I think just people understanding what it is and that it exists is really valuable here in Perth. I think one of the biggest problems in that startup community in Perth is a lot of people just don't know that it exists. Yeah, and I think there's a misconception there. that, you know, there's no way to get money in Perth. And I don't think that's there's true. There's a huge misconception with that. And yep. so I think that it's massive that people just know that it exists. And so mm -hmm. if you're a founder and you want to submit an application, if you're trying to get fundraising, um, it is a venture capital Firm, so it's you know we're looking at larger opportunities and companies that have the opportunity to scale. Yep. Um, prior to putting in uh, a application, it's valuable if you have some traction, if you do have some proof in the market to say, hey, we've generated some customers, we've gotten a little bit of development into the actual business cycle itself, for sure. And we're looking for some money to take it to the next level to scale it. Yep. Um, so you can go to the BetterLabsVentures.com.au if you want to submit an application. Yep. I think a former guest on the show, uh, Dan, Dan Javesky, from yeah, from WeMoney. We Money. So we've invested in WeMoney. Yep. Yeah. And Dan is awesome, an yep. incredible founder, a guy you can learn a ton from. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so he's part of the Better Labs ecosystem as well. And then we also have um, an internal team of, I believe it's eight people. Um, that are product managers, and they basically are responsible for coming up with ideas, conceptualizing solutions to problems, and trying to commercialize those businesses. Yep. Um, so we, our offices are in in Flux and Space Cubed in downtown yep. on St. George Terrace. So yep. uh, that's where we all hang out, and I have the opportunity to come in and work directly with those companies trying to scale those, and then also working with Derek Gerard, who's the uh, entrepreneur in residence managing the fund, and then James Edwards, the CEO of Better Labs. So it's an awesome crew over there, but we exist. <laughs> like, look us up, and uh, we also do information sessions where we talk about stuff or you can find us on the internet and yeah. Joe will talk about the three C's. reach out to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the, you have to go along to find out about Dirk's yeah, yeah, three yeah. C's. Yeah, I won't plug the three C's. Yeah, you got to go on and learn more about it. Yeah, yeah. Nice. But, um, oh, that's so that's right. that. And then, yep. yeah, and then Solving Hollow is... Um, initially, it was going to be sort of an in-person workshop type deal mm -hmm. in the, when I was in the States, but mm -hmm. I moved to Perth and uh, I've had enough meetings at midnight with people in the United States because oh, the time yeah. difference is brutal. So I actually turned it into an online uh, program. So yep. uh, you can actually go take it. I would launch it tomorrow, actually. It's like up and running. So oh, yeah, but this will be Friday of whenever this launches. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, nice. So yeah, so that's up and running. So 395 bucks, limited time. You can go on. You can go through my entire framework. There's an editable PDF that comes with each lesson. So I teach you from my experience and then also take you through the templates so you can customize them for your own business. Worth every penny. Um, worth every penny. Worth every penny, yeah. yeah. Um, and then... I'm, uh, I'm sure it won't be that price for very long. I'm sure once you oh, start no, getting... that price is going way up. <laughs> way up. <laughs> so get in up. soon. Way up, yeah. <laughs> no, but I will say a big part of making it affordable is like I recognize that everybody has a ton of money in the early days, yeah. but I'd rather set your company up for success and be a reliable resource for you than try and you know jack a bunch of money out of you early on so um there's that and then social channels at mr casey holiday mrkc holiday you can follow me yeah yep. throw those on the bottom make sure yeah people know. we'll put the supers <laughs> down there um and then uh solving hollow on instagram as well but and i'm on twitter tiktok and instagram 
Casey Holiday from the OC. From the OC. Thank you yeah. so much for this wonderful episode. Did you episode. watch the OC? Uh, I can't say it. I know the so- the theme song. Maybe we'll fade out to California. Yeah, that, yeah actually, if you could, that'd be really <laughs> nice. Yeah, as long as there's no licensing restrictions. Yeah. But, mate, like Western Australia is better for having you over here oh, instead of in you. California. Thank you for everything you're Thanks doing. Thanks for, for having community. me on. I appreciate um, it. We, we shared a, um, a great day together in a stuffy room for the Plus 8 um, accelerator program, so that was good fun. That and was awesome. Yeah, it's been great having you in here. And too, we've been best so. friends ever since. Yeah, well, this is the second time we've caught up. Right? No, Cam, he doesn't <laughs> stop calling me. This is the truth. He doesn't stop calling <laughs> me to hang out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're buddies. It's been just great. If I my wife is listening, there's nothing you want to do. Nothing to worry about. We're all sweet. Well, thank you so much for being cool. with us. Thank you for listening to Weird Growth. Um, please consider subscribing. Check out us. Uh, check out our channel on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, all the channels. We're on. Three, we're on two different video angles here. We've got visuals. The so if you're listening to this, go back, check it through out on roof. YouTube too so you can see all the vibes that are going on in this room. Um, but for now, thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.